56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child, and all who were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. For you are truly God and truly man. Lord, we praise you for the fact that you are the omnipotent one, that you are all powerful, that you have authority over all things. Lord, we've seen how you have authority over nature. We've seen how you have authority over demons. And this morning we're going to see how you have authority over disease and over death. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see who you are with the eyes of faith and to respond to you in that same faith. Lord, as we see the various responses of people to you in this passage, how many are not believing, we pray that you would help us to be among those whose hearts have been tilled by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive this seed of truth that it would grow and bear forth much fruit for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Owen is one of my favorite theologians. He is arguably one of the greatest theologians to ever have written in the English language. Our son Owen, actually John Owen, was born in 2016, 400 years after his namesake. It might surprise you to know that John Owen, that of John's Owen, sorry, that of John Owen's eleven children, only one survived into adulthood, and that she died soon after getting married. John Owen lived through the death of his wife and all eleven of his children, and some with a poorly developed or unbiblical theological understanding would conclude that he must have been a sinful man, or that he lacked faith to have experienced trials of that magnitude. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. If you've spent any time at all with John Owen in his works or in his biographies, you would heartily agree with my assessment. You cannot read his works on overcoming sin and temptation, for example, and without seeing that he, is holy, he was wholly consumed with zeal for the holiness of God. John Owen has been aptly dubbed the Prince of of Puritans, as 
Matthew Barnett and Michael Haken contend in their book, Owen on the Christian Life, Living for the Glory of God in Christ, John Owen was a spiritual giant. And they focus on three key reasons. Owen had a big view of God and a passion to see this great God lifted up in worship. In knowing God, Owen knew humanity. In the words of David Clarkson, who spoke at Owen's funeral, it was his great design to promote holiness in the, in the life and exercise of it among you. And three, Owen sought reformation not only in the individual believer, but also in the corporate church. So why then would such a godly man have been besieged by death? It's clear that Owen was not being punished for sin. It's also clear that he was a man of great faith. But I believe that his faith and his piety and his trials were not unrelated. I believe that the trials that John Owen faced went a long way by the grace of God in the development of his faith and piety. We see this principle where in James 1, 2-4, as echoed is so often in Scripture, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The man who wrote The Death of Death and the Death of Christ about the extent of the atonement knew whereof he spoke. The Lord works sanctification in the lives of his children through trials. Of that you can rest assured. Whoever did not for an instant believe that death is a good thing or, or that disease that so often causes death is good, they aren't. John Owen also understood that quite clearly. It, it is a pity, though, that his, his personal memoirs were destroyed in a fire. It, it seems that none of his personal writing about his wife and children remain. But John Owen didn't love his wife or his children any less than you and I. They say that the death of a child is one of the greatest pains that a parent can experience. And Owen experienced it 11 times. It's not something you get used to. But when experienced through the eyes of those who do not have faith, these sorts of things destroy people. I've seen it many times. Death is an enemy. Paul says quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Death is, a final, death is an enemy, and its final defeat awaits the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But even in his first incarnation, Jesus Christ dealt a death blow to death. Death has power over us through the fall. Mankind is under the curse of death. We are all born under the sentence of death. From the moment of birth, you were dying. And if the Lord tarries, death will take us all. But Jesus came to overcome the curse and the effects of the fall. Jesus is fighting against the forces that fight against us. In this passage, Jesus demonstrates his authority over disease and his authority over death. Not only does Jesus have complete power over nature and complete power over demons, but he also has complete power over disease and over death. Jesus is continuing to reveal who he is. In preparation for the coming question in Luke 9.20, Who do you say that I am? Our passage this morning, Jesus will heal two people, a lady with an issue of blood and a young girl who has died. And the narratives of both beneficiaries of Jesus' healing are interlaced, though as far as we know, these two women never meet. But embedded within the narrative miracle of the resurrection of, of, the, of the young girl is the healing of the woman. And all three synoptic gospels presented in this way, in this order of events. It's in Matthew 9, 18 to 26, and Mark 5, 21 to 43, as well as in our passage this morning. And again, Mark provides more detail and, and Matthew a more abbreviated version. These two miracles share many elements, crowds who respond strongly to Jesus. Two females, a woman and a little girl. Twelve years, uncleanness, physical touch, fear, and secret faith. 
This passage is a roller coaster of emotion as the main characters deal with chronic and acute illness and those around them also respond to Jesus. Jesus can be trusted in the direst circumstances of life. But who will trust in Jesus? Who in this passage is going to trust in Jesus? In, this, in the people's responses, we see a further illustration of the parable of the sower. As many reject Jesus and the word out of hand. So this morning we're going to see Jesus' authority over disease and over death. And we'll see faith as the only proper response to who Jesus is. There are three main scenes in this passage. First of all, in verses 40 to 42, Jairus goes to Jesus. And then in verses 43 to 48, the woman goes to Jesus. And then in verses 49 to 56, Jesus goes to the young girl. So first of all, in verses 40 to 42, Jairus goes to Jesus. Jesus and the disciples have departed Gentile territory on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and returned to Israel. I mentioned last week that Jesus did not go outside of Israel again uh, during his first incarnation, and I was actually wrong. I read just yesterday in Matthew 15 that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean just north of Israel. Mark 7 relays the same incident. But anyhow, in our, in our passage this morning, Jesus sails back across the Sea of Galilee to Israel. And when he arrives, he's welcomed by the Jewish crowd. And on the surface, their response is, is the opposite of what we saw with the Gentiles in, in the Gerasenes. That the seed here that has been planted among these people appears to be growing. But will it bear fruit? Remember, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, after Jesus had, had cast out the demons into the herd of pigs, the, the people there had asked him to leave. The only one, so far as we know, that, that came out at least upon Jesus' first uh, Jesus visit there was the, the man who had been formerly a demoniac. He's, he's, as far as we know, he's the only one who Jesus had left there as a witness to those around him. But all of the other people rejected him and told Jesus to leave. But here... The people are waiting for him. Here the people are eager to see him. And among them was a man named Jairus. And we're told that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. He was responsible for the worship services. He would have led in prayer and read the scriptures and preached like Pastor Joshua. He would have been a respectable man in the synagogue and in the community. Again, he provides a stark contrast from, from what we've just seen where Jesus has come back from a region full of unclean people, from a man possessed by unclean spirits, from the unclean pigs into which they went. And we'll see in a moment, Jesus is about to meet another unclean person. But here Jairus is presented as an upstanding man and, and very different. We often see that the, those in the, the rulers of the synagogue often reject Jesus and reject the gospel, but this man has faith. So before this unclean person comes to Jesus, Jairus comes to see Jesus and falls at his feet. Again, we think back to the last passage where the demoniac fell at Jesus' feet and implored Jesus, but for very different reasons. Jairus implores Jesus to come to his house because his 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, lays dying. Now, in the first century, in the ancient Near East, a 12-year-old girl would have been approaching the age of, of betrothal and of, of marriage. She was entering what would have been considered the prime of her life. But it seems that her life is about to end. Just put yourself in, Jairus, in the shoes of Jairus for a moment. C consider what it would be like to watch as life ebbs from your precious child. It's an experience that John Owen knew intimately. But for Jairus, there was hope that her da his daughter could be healed. Jairus sought Jesus. Only Jesus could help. Only Jesus could save his daughter. Jairus had faith in Jesus. We aren't told directly, but Jesus obviously agrees to go with him. 
And as they begin to make their way to Jairus' house, the going is slow. The, the crowds of people are pressing around Jesus, all of them eager to get close to him. The same word translated pressed here is, is used to describe the seed that is choked out by thorns in the parable of the sower. From a human perspective, it appears as though Jesus' opportunity to minister to this family is being choked out by the crowds. Imagine Jairus' tension. Minutes would have felt like hours as he moved away slowly through the crowd. Do you ever feel like people are, are getting in the way of what you feel you need to do? It's even possible to feel that way in, in ministry when you're ministering to others. There, there, there's someone you're trying to help and other people get in the way. You know, when, when you're, you're, you're talking to, to somebody after the service and you, you see somebody who, who needs, who you know needs, needs ministry across and the, the other person just is, is oblivious to that. Or, or times when, you, when you're busy helping people with other things and, 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 and but you, you know that there's, there's needs that you have. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Sometimes it's a lack of sensitivity on the part of the, of the person and, and, and sometimes it's okay to tell them, like, I'm sorry, I just don't have time to deal with this right now. But be careful not to get annoyed because people are not working according to your schedule. Jesus is about to get a much bigger interruption. Verses 43 to 48. The woman goes to Jesus. Now Jesus' mission to help Jairus' daughter is about to be interrupted, truly interrupted. It is interrupted, but the two miracles are interconnected. In verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Her situation was bleak indeed. Instead of having a monthly cycle, the bleeding did not stop. And who knows the, the physical discomfort that she faced on a daily basis? It was highly unlikely that she would be able to marry, let alone to be able to have children. She would have been considered ceremonially unclean, unable to participate in temple worship, Luke, Leviticus 15.25. She would have been isolated because anyone who touched her would have been ceremonially unclean as well, Leviticus 15.27. So she, in that culture, she was very much an outsider. The people that Luke often shows Jesus ministering to. There are parallels here between her and the Gadarene demoniac. She was cut off from society. She had spent all of her money on physicians, none of whom were able to help her. Mark 5.25 tells us that, that she was suffered much under the hands of the, of the physicians. She had suffered with this ailment for 12 years. The whole lifespan of Jairus' daughter. And Luke himself, a doctor, would have, been, would have had very clear professional interest in these things. And obviously personal interest as well as a Christian, especially as a Christian. All of this adds to the tension. What's going to happen next? What, what's Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to stop and, and, and help this woman and and and? Let his ministry to the daughter of Jairus be curtailed? Well, Jesus has not turned anyone away thus far. But surely the young girl's circumstances were more critical than those of this woman. Under the Canadian triage and acuity scale, the young girl would have been the, at the highest, a level one. Whereas this woman would have been at the lowest, a level five. But Jesus doesn't treat things according to the Canadian triage and acuity scale. The woman comes up behind Jesus and touches him. She reaches out and, and touches the fringe of his garment, the, the tassel on the end of his garment that hung down his back. This woman has faith, but it's secret faith. Now, for obvious reasons, she didn't want anyone to know what she was doing. This is a, a very private issue. And for her to, to touch someone would have made them ceremonially unclean. But not Jesus. 
as she touched him, immediately the issue of blood ceased. Now Luke describes this in, in terms reminiscent of a medical professional. The bleeding stopped. She was healed. But she was also now ceremonially clean. Twelve years of, of suffering, of isolation, of uncleanness were overturned in one All the physicians had tried for 12 years, but no one could heal her. But now in one moment, in one simple act of faith, she was healed. Now we're going to see these sorts of miracles in the book of Acts. In Acts 5, uh, 15 and 16, where we, we see um, that people are brought out so that Peter's shadow can fall on them and so that they're healed. Or in Acts 19, 11 and 12, where, where handkerchiefs that Paul has touched are brought to the sick and they are healed. Now Jesus stops and asks, Who was it that touched me? Everyone denied it, even though they'd all touched him. We're going to see more of Peter's brashness here in verse 45 as he, he charges, charges ahead with the answer. He starts outright calling Jesus Master. Only Luke uses this word in the New Testament. It means one who is set over everything to care for it. Peter understands that much. Peter's showing respect and acknowledging Jesus' authority. But he continues, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Captain Obvious is missing the point. Does the omniscient God need a reminder? Peter obviously does not understand yet who Jesus is. But it's not just Jesus. Mark 5.31 says that the, the, the disciples questioned him. None of them yet understood who Jesus is. But as he so often does, Jesus patiently explains. In verse 45, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, could power have gone out from Jesus apart from Jesus' will? And so that he didn't know where the power went. Obviously not. The, the power of Jesus is, is not like some magical power. Or, or Jesus is not like a, a charged battery that discharges itself when touched, as one commentator foolishly asserts. Rather, Jesus wields the power of God. Jesus possesses infinite power. Daryl Bach explains that Jesus is more than a vessel through whom God works. He is the possessor of power and has unique authority. Jesus knew full well what he did and to whom. And Jesus is doing a lot more here than merely healing the woman. He's bringing the situation to light. Jesus would not let her leave without talking to her. And now comes her real test of faith in verse 47. The woman sees that she is not hidden, and she comes trembling and falls down before Jesus. Yet another person falling down at Jesus' feet, but again for different reasons. Again, this is not worship, but she is showing deference, and she is asking for mercy. Her identity is revealed, and she is afraid. She is going to have to confess all before all. But the woman is not concerned about the crowds. She is concerned about Jesus. And she tells everyone why she's touched Jesus and declares that she has been instantly healed. It's all on the table. She is glorifying God, proclaiming Jesus' compassion, proclaiming his willingness and his ability to heal. Now, although the miracle was done privately, Jesus' power is on display. But it's not just the situation that Jesus wants to bring to light. It's the woman. He wants to bring the woman to light. He says to her in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. With this woman's cure widely revealed, she would have been restored into the religious and the social community, but Jesus wants to do more. Jesus wants to restore into his community. Jesus addresses her tenderly as daughter. She is the only woman in all the scriptures who was referred to by, in this way by Jesus. Jesus is identifying her as part of the family of faith. She has testified to Jesus' power, and Jesus testifies to her faith. 
In faith, she believed Jesus could deliver her. She has faith. But it's not that she has enough faith for Jesus to heal her. Simple faith. Any faith is enough. Jesus does not say that her faith has made her well. Jesus does not just say that her faith has made her well, but he says something even more profound. He says to her, go in peace. Now, when Jesus refers to peace here, he's not speaking of of a subjective, emotional, internal response. This refers to the peace that she now has with God. She hasn't just been healed. She's been saved. Imagine being cut off from worship and, and cut off from society for 12 years. And imagine being cut off from God for your whole life without even fully realizing it. But then in one moment, all is restored and you are at peace with God. And you may have not suffered with the same, with, suffered with the same type of, of problem as this woman, but you have suffered the same ultimate problem as this woman. Brothers and sisters, you and I know what it is like to be separated from God. You and I know what it is to be under God's gaze, but apart from God's grace. You and I know what it is to feel conviction, to feel condemnation for our sin. But you and I also know what it was like when God's grace came rushing in. You and I know how God's grace overcame our shame. You and I know how God's grace restored us, not just to society, but to Him. And like the woman, declare in the presence of all what Jesus has done for you. But maybe you're here this morning as one who is still under God's gaze, but apart from God's grace. Maybe even now you are exposed before Jesus. Respond in repentance and faith. And God's grace will overcome your shame. And you also will be welcomed into his companionship. Now we aren't told about Jairus here directly, but, he, but his life is bound up in the same story, isn't it? The, 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 the lives are, are laced together. How different is that woman's faith from the faith of Jairus? Jairus had come to Jesus openly and boldly, but the woman is coming to Jesus secretly, timidly. But friends, true faith in Jesus is true faith. We don't have faith in faith. Faith's power is in its object. Faith's power is in Jesus because the power belongs to Jesus. But though her disease was cured, this woman had had a bigger problem. Again, one that, that she w- would, would not have been fully aware of. We're not told that, that Jairus, we're not told what Jairus' response is, but, but obviously Jairus would have wanted Jesus to hurry along, to get home. But remember the centurion and his servant. Jesus had healed the centurion's Servant from a distance. Jesus did not even need to go to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. But Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do and when. This appointment with this woman in the middle of the crowd was every bit as much a divine appointment as the one that Jesus was about to have with this sick little girl. And this appointment that Jesus had with this woman was every bit as much a divine appointment as when he had sailed across the Sea of Galilee to go and deliver the Gerasene demoniac. This woman was an object of God's sovereign grace. And, you know, Jairus' response to this conversation, we're not told Jairus' response to this, this conversation, but, but he's, here, he's there listening to the whole thing. He hears it all. Now, Jairus didn't have a watch, but I'm I'm sure that the tension grew in his heart and his mind with every moment that Jesus was delayed. But maybe, maybe there's a hint of hope in Jairus' heart that just as Jesus had healed this woman, so we can also heal 
his daughter. But for Jairus, that hope is about to be dashed. Verses 49 to 56. Jesus goes to the young girl. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Your child is dead. These are the words every parent dreads. J.C. Rao wrote that such tidings are th- as these are the bitterest cups which we have to drink into this world. Nothing cuts so deeply into a man's heart as to part with his beloved loved ones and lay them in the grave. Few griefs are so crushing and heavy as the grief of a parent over an only child. John Owen heard these words 11 times. Again, death is an enemy. Death is a powerful enemy. Death takes the rich and the poor, the old and the young, the weak and the strong. And if the Lord tarries, death will take you and death will take your loved ones as well. The messenger continues. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. This title, teacher, was used mainly by those who were outside of the the circle of faith. It seems that this messenger had no idea who Jesus was or that he has power even over death. From a human perspective, all hope is lost. From a human perspective, healing the woman proved to be a costly delay. Jesus had stopped to heal the woman with a less serious medical condition and even stopped to discuss it. And as a result, this young girl, Jairus' daughter, dies. What must Jairus have thought? Now again, we're not told what Jairus was was thinking, but but perhaps it was something like, didn't my daughter need help first? Couldn't Jesus have come back at any time to heal this woman, let alone to talk with her? Jesus knew exactly what Jairus was thinking, and so he turns and speaks to Jairus, saying, do not fear Only believe. She will be well. Jesus knew what Jairus was thinking. This this was a test of Jairus' faith. This was a call to faith. Fear must fall before faith. Jesus was calling to Jairus to have faith, have confidence in Jesus and in his authority and in in his compassion to save his daughter. Jesus made Jairus a promise. Only believe and she will be well. Now, we need to be very careful here. Some people lay claim to this particular promise as if it was for them. Only believe and your child will be made well. But that isn't your promise. That is not your promise. You cannot claim things from God that are not yours. It was heartbreaking last December when one of the the music leaders from Bethel Church in Redding, California lost her two-year-old daughter when her daughter died. And she believed that the Lord was going to raise her daughter from the dead. And her pastor, Bill Johnson, didn't help. He released a statement asking for $100,000 and saying her time here is not done and it is our time to believe boldly and with confidence wield what King Jesus paid for. It's time for her to come to life. Now these words didn't, didn't add, didn't, they, they didn't lead, tr- lead to true comfort. They led to false comfort in the, in the heart of this, this woman. This was, was setting her up for a fall. This was pointing her to false promises that were not hers. And this added to her grief. I read something earlier from the, the woman who was just t- talking about how in the new year she was, she was dreading 2020 and, and coming into this, this year without her daughter. And, and thankfully, she was trying to be thankful, but, but her theology is still radically wrong. And, and her theology is not able to bear up under the burden of grief. My heart breaks for people who are under that teaching. Friends, God can raise the dead. 
But we aren't promised that God will raise our loved ones from the dead. That is not your promise. But in Christ, you have better promises. Do not fear, only believe, and all will be made well. God will raise everyone from the dead at the final trumpet. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we, don't, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, those who others, as others do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do not encourage others with words of false promise. Encourage one another with the promises of God. Encourage one another with these words. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to this response, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Many of, us have, many of us have been praying over this, this past week and a half for Anastasia when we got word that, that she is unwell, that there's something seriously wrong with her, that, that she is jaundiced, that there's a problem with the function of her liver. We, we've cried out to the Lord for Anastasia and for comfort for the Shanes. But their response, in light of, of what is taking place, is guided by the Word of God. Their theology has a very real and practical impact in how they walk through this trial. They are trusting, ultimately, not in some promise that does not belong to them, but they are trusting in, in the real and true promises of God that are theirs in Christ Jesus. This is their comfort. Christ is their comfort. Whether in life or in death, Christ is their comfort. Is Christ your comfort in life or in death? Verse 51. Jesus finally arrives at the house. He allows no one to enter with him except for Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the child. The previous miracle had taken place unobserved, but Jesus wanted it to be made public. But this miracle is going to take place in secret. These five people are the only witnesses, the only ones who are allowed to go into the room with Jesus. Now here we see Peter and James and John singled out. The, these three men were singled out, are singled out by Jesus three times during the course of his ministry. At the transfiguration, as we're going to see in the next chapter. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here at the performance of this miracle. None of the other apostles had such a close opportunity to see Jesus' deity and his power and his compassion. 
Matthew 9, 25 and, and Mark 5, 40 in, include the detail that the crowds, this would have been the friends and the, the neighbors and the requisite professional mourners are, are put outside. Matthew mentions the flute players in Matthew 9, 23 and 24. They're, they're all put outside. They're not able to come in and to see what Jesus is about to do. Jesus tells them, do not weep. Stop what you're doing. Stop with your noisy, loud crying. She isn't dead, but sleeping. In verse 53, they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. In Acts 17.32, some of the Areopagus laughed when Paul taught on the resurrection of the dead. These people laughed. They also show that they had no idea who Jesus was. They, they thought the little girl was dead. But, but just thinking about it, laughing, those who have been previously laughing, are, are now, or mourning rather, or grieving, are now laughing. It's cold and it's heartless. Just, just think about if someone was, was to do that in a, in a hospital room today. Now, of course, if a, if a doctor or, or a pastor was there was, that, that would be talking about sleeping in a different way, but, but imagine just for a second that, that someone would, would laugh when they said, no, he's only, she's only sleeping. But think about who this laughter is directed at. This is no mere doctor or mere pastor. These people are laughing at Jesus. This is the only time in the entire New Testament when someone is expressly said to have laughed. And they're laughing at the Son of God. Again, we see a parallel to the response of the, the people, to, the, to the, the, those who responded to Jesus after the exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac. This is a rejection of Jesus. But when Jesus uses the term here, death, He's thinking about it from his own perspective where, where this, is, this is temporary. This is very temporary for this girl. We just looked at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where even for, for our loved ones who are dead, they're being referred to as only sleeping. This is the, the, the state where the dead await the glorification of their bodies and the, the resurrection. This is the, 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 how we, so we as believers wait for those who are sleeping that, that Christians will rise and have glorified bodies and, and with us worship Jesus. But the unbelievers are also sleeping, though in, it's, it's a, a, we're not talking about the theology of soul sleep here. There's a sense in which they are under, they're under conscious torment, waiting for the judgment of God. But for those who trust in God, death is not the end. There is hope. Death is an enemy, but we need not fear physical death, nor do we need to fear the second death, because Jesus Christ has defeated death for us. Death has truly died through the death of our Lord and Savior. But in verse 44, 54, rather, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Jesus calls out like he had with, like he does with Lazarus, like he does with the, the son of the widow of Nain. Now again, the dead, the dead can't obey apart from God's sovereign authority over death. But think about, again, this idea of being ceremonially unclean. Jesus had just touched a dead girl and Jesus would have been ceremonially unclean. He would not have been able to participate in temple worship. But once again, for Jesus, this is not a problem. Because when he touches her, she's no longer dead. Mark uses the Aramaic words that the, the girl's mother would have, have used in calling her that morning. Talitha kumi. But Luke translates these words for us as he normally does, writing as a Gentile to Greeks. But here we see the almighty power which our Lord possesses over death. At his all-powerful voice, the woman, the, the little girl, is raised from the dead. Now, once again, Jesus did, Jesus did not have to use words. He did that to, to publicly, at least, well, in this small circle, to demonstrate his power. He's revealing his power. 
And Luke includes three details to emphasize the, the girl's resurrection from the dead. Her spirit returned to her body. Now, your spirit, which is also referred to as your soul, is, is the essence of you. It, it, it's the, the eternal, immaterial part of you that you will leave. So as you leave your body in death, your, your soul or your spirit continues. And then your spirit or soul will be unified with a glorified body one day. So the, the girl's spirit returns to her body. Second, her life was restored. And she, she got up at Jesus' command. Mark says that, that she started walking around. And third, Jesus tells them to give her something to eat. This reveals that she is truly alive. Jesus is going to demonstrate his own bodily resurrection after his crucifixion in the same way as he enjoys a meal of bread and fish on the beach with his disciples. And he is, Jesus is also showing compassion. He's showing compassion for her physical needs. The theologian Godet says that Jesus acts like a physician who has just felt the pulse of his patient and gives instructions respecting her diet for the day. Now again, as a doctor, this is something that, that Luke would personally resonate with. Just think about this for a second. If, if Jesus had not brought this little girl back to life, would he have been any less loving? If Jesus had not brought this little girl back to life, would he have been less, any less holy or any less God? Now, one day, Jesus will bring, bring all the dead to life. But as this, this woman, as this, this little girl is, is raised from the dead, we're, we're not really told what happens to her after that. We're not really told whether she was saved. But we do see the response from her parents in verse 56. They were amazed. They, they were shocked. We often see this as a response to the miracles of Jesus. It's understandable that they were amazed. This is, this is something that, that even objectively, even if it's somebody out there that you, you witness this, but this is where their own daughter. Can't even imagine the, the emotions that would have, begin, have begun to flood into their hearts as their faith became sight. Well, last week, the passage ended with, with the, the command of Jesus to, to tell, for the Gadarene demoniac or the Gerasene demoniac to tell everyone. But this time, back at Israel, he says, tell no one. The end of the verse, he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The raising of, of the widow's son in, in uh, chapter 7, verses 11 to 17 was very public as was the, was the exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac. But in this passage, this is very private. They're told to keep it secret. We talked last week about the messianic secret as, as back as, as outside of, of in, in Gentile country, there was, there was no concern that, that it was going to be a public fervor around Jesus and they were going to follow him looking to help have him get rid of the Romans. But, but here now back in Israel, as the crowds have grown, there's, there's concern that, that people will try to come and to make Jesus forcibly become king. And, and remember, he has a mission. He is the king, but his mission leads to the cross. Jesus does not want crowds who are going to follow him simply on the basis of his miracles. This also reveals the emphasis of his ministry. And also the timing of his ministry. Jesus could have gone into the cemetery and raised everyone who was there. But he didn't. One day, he will. So we've seen here, in this, in this account, we see Jesus' power. We see the importance of faith. We, we see the, the patience of one who is called to trust in God. To, and we see that God is going to do God's work in God's time. We see that Jesus' power reveals who he is, that we are called to trust him, that he is faithful to his promises. As we think about Jesus' power over disease and over death, 
we realize that, that that is very likely going to look very different in our day than it did during his incarnation. That Jesus performed these miracles in order to reveal who he is. We know who he is. We do not need these miracles in order to, to, to believe. The power of the Holy Spirit in our, in the, at work in our hearts helps us to believe. But I said we have greater promises than that God will raise our physical children from, from sickness or, or raise our, our loved ones from, from disease and death. We have the promise that, that only believe and all will be well. We have the promise that one day Jesus is going to return. We have the promise that one day Jesus is going to, to raise all, uh, everyone from the dead. Those who, uh, those who have faith in him, he's going to raise them to eternal life. And those who have rejected Jesus, he's going to raise them to eternal suffering in hell. But Jesus has, overcome, has come to overcome death. And through his own death, he might destroy the power of the one who has the, of the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. John Owen rejoiced in this. He said it's, it's, it was the, these were the children and the death of death and the death of Christ. He said these, it was the focus of God and the faith of, of God's children, of the ones that, that the Lord had given to him. From verse 13 of Hebrews 2. That he had confidence that the Lord would raise even his children who believed in him, in Christ, to everlasting life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 56, we are, we are told that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John Owen knew that as he faced death chronically in his life. We too can know that through the, the promises of God's word that are given to us in Jesus Christ. What is your comfort in life and in death? Is it in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who died that you might have life? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the resurrection and the life. We praise you that just as death could not hold you, death cannot hold those who belong to you. We praise you, Lord, that you have granted us eternal life through your life and death and resurrection. Help us, Lord, I pray, to lay hold of these promises. Help us, Lord, not to be fearful of our temporal circumstances, but to rejoice in our eternal circumstances. Help us, Lord, to have faith in you. Give us the eyes of faith. We believe, O oh Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us, Lord, like the woman who had been healed, like Jairus, to trust you to have faith in you, even in the most difficult of circumstances, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.